It's good to see you guys this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Jason, um, and I'm glad you're here. I am gl- very glad you're here. You matter to us. And before we jump in, I just want to say, uh, start the clock and, because I'll be here all day if not. Uh, tonight, if you're a partner and you've heard from us in an email, you definitely don't want to miss tonight's meeting. We ask for very few things from our partners. Uh, occasionally, maybe like once every, I don't know, two years, we'll, we'll actually say this is a meeting you need to be at. So we, we've done the work in the thesaurus to try to figure out how to stop just shy of obligatory, uh, but we really mean it. And an interesting thing about tonight's meeting, and I love the fact that we will be inconvenienced and we won't be in this room, we're going to be in the community center because this room is under contract for ham. They're doing a big thing here tonight, and actually the, every inch of this property is under contract to them. So we're going to get to slide in and slide out carefully, and when Trey says, okay, everyone leave, we're going to have to everyone leave so we can free up the parking because this property is so much more than just what we do on Sunday mornings. And so this afternoon is one of those examples of how this works. And so if that intrigues you, come see how we make it work. Uh, But at 525, I'm told Trey is going to stand up and light something on fire. (laughs) And he's going to pull that fire alarm and we're going to all have to evacuate that building and take our cars with us. So, but look forward to seeing you tonight, updating you on some important details, good things coming for Austin New Church. As we discussed last week, we're going to be following the lectionary, and we did last week, and for the next couple of weeks, as we move into Advent, the season of longing, uh, and Luke is our guide this year, uh, and so we're trekking along with him, and today brings us a very strange conversation between Jesus and the leaders called the Sadducees, and I'm just going to be honest with you, this is a text that I would never have picked. I dug around, and I mined around, and I called some people, and there's just not much on this text. It's a strange and odd conversation that goes several directions at once, and I'm trusting in the wisdom of the lectionary as it sets us up to have a two-part conversation today and one week from today that we're going to call heaven. We're going to begin this with the text in Luke, and we're going to end up, if you must know, if you don't know how to find lectionary.com, with with the text from Isaiah 65 for next week. But I want to start with this idea. What comes to your mind when I say the word heaven? Okay, it came to your mind, but not to your mouth. That's perfect. Because in the 9.30, we lost a bunch of time. No, I'm just... What comes to your mind? Honestly, shout a few things out. What comes to mind when I say the word heaven? Now. Now. Living in joy. joy. No suffering. Eternity. Thank you, Susie. Happy life. Kingdom. Okay. Peace. Someone said peace. What else? Comes to your mind, Dr. Chuck understanding. No pearly gates, no streets of gold, no crystal sea. Y'all, man, we should, we should take the 11 and the 9 and blend them to come up with the average. Such a different conversation. <laughs> Comes to our mind when we say the word heaven. I'm going to ask you this question, and this is built on sort of what is true for us anyway, and you would know this if you're here often. It's fair to deconstruct what we've been told. So permission granted to think through these things as they Rise back in us, okay. How well are those old frameworks working for you now? Pearly gates, streets of gold, crystal seas, sitting on a cloud, I don't know how to play a harp, I'm not interested in singing forever, especially not when Mark's in the room. Just rather let Mark sing. And do we accept the answers that we were told on flannel graph when we were young? 
Today, I want to have a gentle conversation, and I want to carry what for us is sort of an evolving faith into this conversation too. Jen says, we had this conversation this week, she says that our views on heaven are like shrink-wrapped gifts that we're given and we're told, don't tinker, don't touch, don't play with it, just be glad you've got it, right? Does that make sense? Don't mess with it, just receive it. All you have to do is receive it, whatever that means, right? I think she's right. I think we have done almost no thinking about the afterlife. Don't feel the pressure, do we? I love the idea of heaven, to be honest. In many ways, I still cherish it, but if I'm honest, also, you must know that as I examine my faith, I'm beginning to feel the limitations of what I was taught about heaven. So as your pastor, I get to deconstruct with you. I get to wonder. I get to ask hard questions, and my faith gets to evolve too. So that's what we're going to witness this morning. If you had to nail me down, I'm not sure how you would do that at this point in my life. What we have is a whole bunch of language, mostly from ancient times, that sometimes feels good and sometimes comes up short. Let me be very clear. Views on heaven and held and on hell are held very deeply by us. And so I don't mean to tug on a thread of the sweater and undo something of meaning for you. That's not the role of the pastor. Now, I have been faulted, rightfully so, for pulling too hard, too fast on things that I think need to be deconstructed. My intention today is not to rush this process. And I would suggest that you don't let go of anything to grab onto something new if that thing you're holding works for you. No one's arguing about where your grandma is or where your grandpa is. If those things work and those frameworks work for you, don't let them go until something of greater meaning comes along. Does that make sense? So my invitation is to think a couple of new thoughts that I think need to come to bear on how we think about the afterlife, but don't feel rushed or pushed or condescended to. Don't deconstruct things because people say to. Deconstruct what's rumbling and rattling in your own life. And I think that's a better way to look at your spiritual journey. I go fast and far sometimes to my own detriment and look, turn around behind me and realize there's nobody with me. So that's just me. That's the, and I get to struggle out in public with you around that. You might know this about me if you watch what I read, but I'm not deep into speculation, okay? I'm not into speculative books on leadership. I don't care what worked for your church, but I will read Brene Brown. Okay? I'm not into speculative books on marriage, how after five years of marital bliss you think marriage works. I'm not into speculation, but I will read John Gottman. What's the difference? Science and data and the accumulation of information over time brings me comfort. I want something more than just what worked for someone in some place at some point. Speculation doesn't do much for me. As it turns out, as a species, we're actually pretty good at compiling data, but we're not so good at extrapolating that out into the future. We have human beings that live 250 miles above us on an international space station, right? We know now that the greatest flow of water in the Amazon is not actually the Amazon River. It's the river that flows in the sky that runs over the forest into the Andes, into the mountains, and comes back down. We know things. We have gained great knowledge about this place. And despite the loads of knowledge and experience and the data that we have gathered, we haven't managed to compile a whole lot about heaven, have we? What we have for the most part are the musings of ancient religious people who speak with the kind of concrete certainty that lands more like faith than knowledge to me, if I'm honest. Now, believe me, I'm not saying the ancients lacked insight. What I'm saying is that there's room enough for us to add what we have received from then 
from them, add things that we know to be true now. Does that make sense? New understandings of, of how things work, new awareness, and maybe even a new level of consciousness. If you have been with me at all, you know that I think all of these things are ongoing questions. We don't just receive from the ancient times. We receive, we cherish, we polish, we innovate, we imagine, we move forward. That's the nature of revelation. It's the nature of the gospel. What does it mean when we start talking about heaven and the afterlife? Heaven is more of a collection of ideas than a single concept. If I had to be honest, it's never fully defined. Consequently, so is hell. Here's my question for you. What does Jesus say about hell? The next question would have to be, well, which is he talking about? Sheol or the lake of fire or Hades or a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth? These are all ideas he talks about. We compartmentalize them. We put them in nice little capsules and we say, oh, he's talking about hell. This is what he's talking about. And the reality is we cram things that don't belong together until we realize that maybe these two things don't actually fit. Now, of course, Jesus did talk about heaven most often. Actually, he would use this word formulation, my father who is in heaven, some 20 times in the New Testament. But he would describe heaven as having qualities that would be familiar to us, things like a house. He talked about a kingdom. He talked about living in a reality of authority. He spoke about the present reality. And even in the Lord's Prayer, he ties heaven to this idea of living a way of living in the real world. And I would argue that most of what we think about heaven and hell doesn't actually come from Jesus. Most of what we think about it comes from Christians struggling in dark and sinister times. Turns out, Bishop N.T. Wright agrees with me, and in a Time Magazine article, he says this. He says, most of what we think about heaven and hell comes from Dante's Inferno and Michelangelo's painting on the Sistine Chapel. It's time to do some thinking, church. Our imagination of the afterlife flares up in the form of art and poetry and prose during times when want and disease and social upheaval are afoot. No wonder. Nothing wrong with that as long as we can still decipher text from context. When your streets are strewn with the feces of empire and your rivers run black with sewage, then streets of gold and crystal seas make sense. When you are homeless and you are a scattered people, then a house with many rooms makes sense. Survival, as it turns out, is difficult work. And hope is not easy to keep alive. So these things show up in art and they show up in language. And before we know it, we think that it's part of the gospel and it's part of the scriptures. So if we're not to trust in religious fiction or the chapel ceilings and how they're painted, where can we turn for help as we look across the abyss of human experience and try to make meaning of life and death? Where do we turn? What do our scriptures say about heaven? What sense do we make of those who have gone before us? Where are they now, those who have died? Is heaven some otherworldly place, or can we see it from here? That's the question. And we're going to get into more detail next week when Sam Beach and I co-teach the second part of this series. Bishop Wright also says these words, and I think these resonate with me. Never at any point do the Gospels or do Paul say Jesus has been raised, therefore we're all going to heaven. No, no, they say that Jesus is raised, therefore the new creation has begun and we have a job to do. How much have we inserted into those teachings, looking back over centuries? I think we've put things where they don't belong sometimes. And part of our faith journey is the permission to study and understand and separate things that don't go together. And I think we make that almost an art form in this church. Truth is, the ancients had very little understanding of how the world actually worked, did they? Didn't they? And it shows up in how they speak of heaven and hell. 
What's my point? Why would we leave our thoughts on heaven and the afterlife up to the imagination of ancient, pre-modern, pre-scientific men anyway? Why would we leave it there? Why would we not bring it into our own conversation? Are there things that we have learned since that could be added to what we've been told that would paint a fuller picture of our future hope? Oh, I hope so. I hope so, church. Do you remember when it cost people their lives to suggest that the earth may not occupy the center of the universe? Do you remember? Do you remember where we would paint canvases and off to the side we would paint sea dragons because, of course, this is where the flat earth falls off, and that's, of course, Austin and you know, that, that Houston doesn't claim that. So that's the wild, crazy chaos of the other world. You get what I'm saying? Do you remember when to suggest that it was round would cost you your credentials? Our knowledge of the world didn't stop accumulating with the ancients, is what I'm trying to say. We continue to learn and explore and describe. And if I'm arguing anything, it's this. We get to do the same with our views about the afterlife. We get to ask some hard questions. But where should we begin is the question today. So if we have access to them, I would always suggest we begin with the life and the teachings of Jesus. It's the place I go to. It's the place I understand the most. It's not the only thing that there is to be learned, but I think it matters. Those two things. What did Jesus say and how did he live? So let's look at our text today that comes from the lectionary. Luke 20, 28 through 37, 28 actually through 40, reads this way. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. Now, you should know this feels like a trap, doesn't it? The beginning of an interesting web here. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, this, all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. And then at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? since the seven are married to her. Jesus replies, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, Jesus, as if to say, you bring me Moses, Let's talk about Moses, and here's what he says. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, and these words should be underlined in your mind. For to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared ask him any more questions. I just want to know how he does that little bit of magic, and why can't I do that at dinner time? Right? Why can't I answer a question sufficiently so that there are no more questions? (laughs) Those words, for to him all are alive, Jesus says. A little context here. So this comes at what we would call the week of questioning. This is when the authorities of the day need to understand how dare he say the things he say. And so one at a time they send envoys from little persuasions, mostly people from the Sanhedrin to try to catch Jesus in public, try to trap him into saying something dumb so that the crowd would reverse their allegiance because he's beginning to rise. And so the Sadducees, who don't believe in the afterlife, come to him and say, let's talk about the resurrection of the dead, something that they don't even agree with. The Pharisees have taken their shot, they've taken their chop, but as best we can tell, as Luke remembers this happening, this is the end of questions. He asked, they, they ask him about whose property will she be? Who gets to own her? What of possessions in the new world? What of patriarchy? And what of all of these things in the new world? And Jesus clams them up and answers a completely different question. 
The Pharisees were mostly interested in preserving how they did their, their, their Jewish faith. The Sadducees were far fewer in number, far more powerful, far more wealthy. They were mostly, mostly inspired to preserve the status quo, and they want to trap Jesus by getting him to say something stupid. They took their lead from the writings of Moses. Everything other than Moses to them was speculation. No afterlife, no spirit realm, no hell, no heaven. And they asked him about the resurrection from the dead. They had a reason to preserve the current arrangement. Turns out it was working pretty well for them. So on the face of this, this seems to be a conversation about divorce, but Jesus doesn't take that bait. There's a different conversation about death and finality and the eternal nature of life itself that Jesus wants to have. It's about authority and who gets to excommunicate who. And from the context, we know that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are trying to embarrass each other publicly in front of the crowd and all of these things. And this becomes a conversation in the most strange moment about a new world about a new creation. Jesus' teachings on the afterlife, we'll go more into these next week, but they followed the same earthy, earthy and earthly tones as most of his other teachings. He deploys ideas that have to do with bread and water and wine and pearls and fields and seeds and vineyards and fishermen's nets. When talking about the next life, Jesus talked about a house in most occasions with many rooms, which makes sense if you're homeless. I get it. But is heaven really a big, big house? You remember the CCM song from the 90s? Anybody want all that money back from the way you were raised? Big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. Yeah, you're singing it. I was watching David Taylor's over there singing. He's like, ooh. Yeah. I envy you if you have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> but is heaven really a big house? Probably not. He taught us using terms that we could understand, and he played with the time frame of eternity most importantly. And it starts now, not later, as many believed and continue to believe. He tells the thief on the cross, today you and I will sip mezcal in the new world. Yeah, still working that out, Jerome. I'm still working out last night's mezcal. His teachings, his teachings help. He doesn't sit down and write the book, but they help. They bring us hope, which I think matters more than anything. They remind us that there is someone who's preparing a place for us. Always begin with the teachings of Jesus would be my rule. But what about his life? What about the arc of his existence? I think this is where we should drop a bucket and draw new water. Here's what I want us to consider today. John, the beloved apostle, claims that Jesus scandalously claims in the first chapter of his account of the Gospels that he claims that Jesus was there at the beginning when the world was created. He was present in the man, and he's going to be ever available and present to us all in the form of the Spirit. If this is true about Jesus, now go with me, this is going to be this is going to feel a little disconcerting. If this is true about Jesus, that he pre-exists and he existed in the flesh and he will always be here, what, is, what if this is the nature of material itself? What if this is the very arc of life itself? Think about this. What if this is true for all of us? What if death is a phase change, a reconfiguration of matter, but it's not the loss of matter as science seems to be teaching us now? What if those who have gone ahead actually remain? My favorite of my grandmothers is my wife's grandmother, and boy, is she with us every day. She's gone. She's not gone. You see my point. Jesus claims that to him, to God, all are alive. I wonder if we've fully considered this. See, modern science says this, every bit of matter that was here at the birth of the cosmos remains. It's still here. Nothing goes away. It all remains. 
And if that's true, and if John intuits this about Jesus long before this was accepted truth, I wonder, is the same not true for you and me? Oh, I wonder. So I want to be careful here. I'm not helping you very much if I ask you to give me one concrete object not to question and I hand you another. I'm just putting thoughts and ideas together here. I'm not answering questions. This isn't the ultimate statement. But I'm curious about how this idea might interact with what we have been taught and what we think about the afterlife. Hear me. You too were here at the beginning. You were here at the beginning. Before the world was made, David says, I was formed in the womb of my mother. Oh, this isn't foreign Christian doctrine. Put away your heresy highlighter. (laughs) You've always been here. And check this out. You are wonderfully and beautifully present now in mysterious and concrete ways. And you will always remain because you are eternal. You have always been. We have all always been here in the heart of God. And we remain for whatever happens in the new world. Think about this. You say, now you're talking crazy, preacher. Well, am I? Am I? Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. We call him the Son of God. We separate heaven and hell. It comes together in the man, Jesus Christ. He says, my preferred title is Son of Man. It should not have surprised us that God would put on the skin of an infant who needed us to nurture it. The cosmos has always nurtured the becoming of God. This should feel natural, but it doesn't. We've bought Dante's Inferno, and we've looked too long at the chapel, the, the painted chapel of, that, that Michelangelo imagined where he puts literally hell and heaven as counterweights fighting for mankind. I'm not sure we've done a great service. You've always been here. You will always be here. To be present at creation, then to be born of a woman and to be ever present after death is actually the way material works. It's actually what's truest about the cosmos. Now, the ancients could never have seen this from there. That's fine. We do. Now what? We get to add what we know and what we learn to what we've been taught, do we not? We get to carve a new faith, a new thing. We get to imagine and move in new directions. And my hope is that it brings us hope and brings us life. Now, you guys all know that Richard Rohr asks me what to write his emails about. So this, this excerpt from Richard Rohr's email today and some concluding thoughts. He writes, the resurrection is not a one-time miracle that proved Jesus was God. Jesus' death and resurrection name and reveal what is happening everywhere and all the time in God and in everything that God creates. Reality is always moving towards resurrection. Jesus' incarnate life, his passing over into death and his resurrection into the ongoing Christ life is the archetypal model for the entire pattern of creation. Jesus is the microcosm for the whole cosmos. As in him, so also in us. As in all of us, so also in him, Roar writes. Final thoughts here. Maybe what Jesus is addressing as he talks about the afterlife is a mindset of scarcity that says, we want to know who gets the girl. Jesus says, this doesn't happen in the new world. This doesn't travel across the chasm. We are so focused on preserving. We don't want to lose what we love. We, don't want to, we want to know who's right and whose is she, and Jesus doesn't even answer it. Maybe it's the scarcity that dies on the cross when he spreads his arms in love. Maybe it's the mindset that says this is all there is that he's stretching. Oh, let it be so.
Maybe he's pushing us to rethink what we were taught about death and finality and significance and presence. I don't think a question about divorce is all that interesting to Jesus. He doesn't go there. He brings us these words, for to him all are alive. Now, you need to know why this matters to me this week. One of the fiercest, strongest people I have ever known, standing at the edge of the abyss, looking across at her own immortality. I've never loved or respected a leader more than Jessica Fry. This week, we had to sit with the ultimate revealing of what is the state of disease, where is the progression of cancer in the body. We feared the worst. PET scan happened on Wednesday. Results came in. Not long after that, it was a relief to know that it hadn't progressed. But boy, if you're going to stand in an empty space and you're going to talk about life and death and the afterlife and immortality and what we're facing and what does it mean and are they gates, are they streets, is it a crystal sea, what is, if you're going to offer words into silence around these ideas, it better bring hope for people who are standing on the edge or it's all worthless. Jessica, join me. I want her to stand in front of you. Jessica serves on our board Jessica is a doctor of psychology. She's a million things, but she's fighting and she's fierce and she's focused and she's teaching me and hopefully those who are watching her what it looks like to stand on the edge and say, and I remain and I still have hope and in some way I will never go anywhere. I will always be available. Boy, does that matter if you're in your 30s and you have kids who are five and seven. Boy, does it matter. If I want you to hear from her, I'm sorry if I stole your thunder. Yeah. Um, so yes, hey everybody, I'm Jessica. Um, the only person that calls me Dr. Fry is him. Um, you, paid, am, you paid for it, I'm gonna call it, until you pay it off. I'll tell I, you what, when you finally pay it off, I'll stop calling you Dr. Fry. I get to die out of it. Yeah. That was the best news of the week. <laughs> yeah. Um, I am a mom to two little ones, and um, we wrestle with this stuff. This is not theoretical for us. Mm. This is um, ever-present. It is close, and we live with the reality that at any given time, um, because it is in my lungs, that we could be six months out. And this week, we were very worried that that buzzer was starting to tick. Um, And I said to Jason, the thing that I don't want is for anyone to doubt the goodness of God mm-hmm. because of something that happens to me this week. Um, that would make me so sad. Um, but as I struggled and I, I looked at ways to talk to my kids, we, it's hard to talk to kids about cancer. And we went and got some help at this place called Wonders and Worries. And they said, be honest. Tell them what you know. Tell them if you don't know. And this week, we didn't know. And my kids are able to say so matter-of-factly, they say it on the playground. It's unnerving sometimes for other adults or or their peers. Um, When my mom leaves her body, because cancer traveled the highway of her lymph system, She has a gate that gets medicine into her body. And they say it's so sure, and it comforts them. And I think Jesus was trying to offer the disciples that same comfort 
I don't think he was trying to be condescending. I don't think he was necessarily talking to them like children, although I know that sometimes I deserve it. Um, he was like, guys, I'm about to leave you, but I'm going to be here with you. I was here before, I am here now, I will be in the future, I will be as present as this very food that we're eating. Look around, I won't be gone. And when I explained that to my kids um, about our souls and about heaven, and I look at it as like states of matter, and I explained it to them like water. Um, you know, water can be ice, water can be liquid, and water can be vapor. And I think sometimes people stand at the edge of a dried up riverbank and they say, it's gone, it's gone and they even curse God. And I think God's just asking us to say, to look around and be like, it's right here. It's right here, it's in the green of the grass. It's in the roots of the trees that have soaked it up. It's in the clouds above you. It's in the air you're breathing right now. And that, when I tell my kids, um, that even when I leave my body, that they'll be able to still find me. That at any given point, um, their point of connection to me, I tell them, you'll, you'll always have a belly button. And so that's the mark of your connection to me for the rest of your life. And so at any point, no matter what's going on, um, how scared you are, how dry the riverbank is, you can know that you can be in communion with me by mm. connecting to that. Um, and so I hope that we can use the crackers and the wine to say, Lord, how lucky are we that we get to be in communion with you right now? Yes, yes, thank you, thank you. Why don't you join me on your feet? If you're able, join me on your feet and let's prepare our hearts for the meal.